Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 15. Jesus is tested in the wilderness. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. Well, this morning we're continuing our series looking at the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And over the past few weeks, we've been looking at what we call the Old Testament and the way in which the Holy Spirit was involved in creation, the way in which creation itself was breathed into life through the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit just doesn't appear um, with the Acts of the Apostles and with the Gospels in the New Testament, but the Spirit of God has been active all the way through. We've seen over the past few weeks how the Spirit of God comes upon prophets and upon priests and upon kings. The Spirit of God is given for a specific reason, for a specific purpose, for a limited time. That's the way in which the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, works in, as I say, what we call the Old Testament, given to kings and prophets and priests. Next week, on Pentecost Sunday, in the morning at least here at Peace and Cheese, we'll be looking at the way in which the Spirit was given in a new way. And from that first Pentecost Sunday, when the church came into being, the Holy Spirit now is available to every single person, every single believer, every single Christian has the Holy Spirit living inside them, irrespective of gender, irrespective of age, irrespective of ethnicity, irrespective of race. The Holy Spirit is now given to every single Christian. In fact, Paul says in the New Testament that you cannot be a Christian without the Holy Spirit living inside you. If you are a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives inside you. You cannot be a Christian without the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives inside you. Paul describes it in terms of that same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is at work in us who believe. 
So the same spirit that breathed life into the corpse of Jesus is that same spirit that next Sunday we'll look at was breathed upon and into the early church and is also breathed into and resides in each one of us who knows and loves Jesus. And the reality is that we cannot live the lives that we want to live or that God wants us to live by ourselves. We cannot pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We cannot, however nice, however good, however religious, however prayerful, however much you read the Bible, however peaceful, gentle, loving, patient, kind, we cannot do it by ourselves. We need the Holy Spirit living inside us. And the real question is not whether we have the Holy Spirit. The real question is, does the Holy Spirit have us? Are we filled in an ongoing way with the Holy Spirit? Is the life of God deepening within us? Is the power of God, the peace of God, the love of God, the patience of God, the kindness of God being seen ever more evidentially in our lives? Is the fruit of the Spirit being reproduced in us? Are we more loving than we were six months ago? Are we more patient drivers than we were a year ago? Are we kinder than we were five? There's various people prompting each other and going, yeah, that's for you. Um, are we, that's not kind if you do that. Can I just say that you need to be more kind. If you're prompting the person that you think needs to be kind, you need to be kinder and, and more patient. But that's the reality. I came across um, on the BBC News website this week, evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, this photograph is of a speed camera in Wiesen in western Germany. And uh, this uh, speed camera went off because the driver was obviously speeding, uh, but they got away without the €105 Euro and the £93 fine because of what was referred to in the official police report as a work of the Holy Spirit. This white dove that you can see has totally obscured the face of the driver. Uh, which meant that the driver wasn't prosecuted because they couldn't actually identify who the driver was. And the official report said this, It is no coincidence, we feel, that the Holy Spirit intervened. It's the official police report. We have understood the sign and leave the speeder in peace this time. But the officials in Wiesen, in near Germany's western border, added, We hope that the protected speeder likewise understands this hint from above and drives appropriately in the future. <laughs> maybe it's the Holy Spirit, maybe it isn't. But what we're going to look at this morning is the way in which the Holy Spirit and a particular aspect of the work of the Holy Spirit and the way in which the Holy Spirit enables. But I want to look at this particular enabling work of the Holy Spirit in a way which is a bit different. And in a way which, if I'm honest, as I was preparing the talk this week, surprised me in the direction that the talk went. Uh, sometimes that happens. Uh, you come to a passage and you think you know where the talk's going to go, but you just get this sense when you're looking at a passage that God takes you in a particular direction that's different to the one that perhaps you had expected. Next week, we will look quite rightly at the experience of the Holy Spirit. We'll look at the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We'll look at the difference 
that the Holy Spirit makes. And as I said before, we cannot live the lives that God wants us to live without the Holy Spirit living inside us. The Holy Spirit enables us to lead the lives that God wants us to live. And the reality is that if, if you look through the New Testament, this wasn't just true in the life of the early church. This was also true in the life even of Jesus. Jesus, who was fully human, but also fully divine, the work of the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit, is involved in the life of Jesus. It's, he is there right at the beginning. Um, in Luke's Gospel, we're told of the archangel Gabriel appearing to Mary. And these words, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. The Annunciation and the Incarnation, those are the two technical terms given to the announcement of the birth, but also then the coming uh, to, to birth of Jesus himself. And the Holy Spirit is involved. The Holy Spirit is involved in the Annunciation, the Conception, and indeed of the birth in the Incarnation. And then in those words that Sue read to us a few moments ago from Luke chapter 4, 30 years later, Jesus prepares to begin his public ministry, and again, the Holy Spirit appears in that incident. Just after, at the end of Luke chapter 3, where the genealogy, Jesus' family tree, is written out, expressing and emphasizing the humanity of Jesus. Now in Luke chapter 4, we have the divinity of Jesus emphasized. And we get these interesting phrases that refer to Jesus. This is Jesus. God become a human being. Fully God, fully human. Luke describes Jesus in this way. In Luke chapter 4 and verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, was led by the Holy Spirit. Last week, Paul uh, spoke about the way in which the Spirit anoints people. Well, at the baptism of Jesus, Jesus is anointed. He's set apart for, he's empowered for, he's enabled for his public ministry. He's affirmed because the heavens open at his baptism and a dove that will later appear on a German speed camera, <laughs> comes down from heaven, a bodily form of the Holy Spirit, and a voice comes saying, this is my son whom I love. Jesus is anointed and Jesus is affirmed at his baptism. Now, there's a question, there's a discussion, who needs to hear and who needs to see? Does Jesus need to hear and need to see? Well, maybe he does. He needs to know that his Father is with him. He needs to know that the Spirit is with him. He needs to hear the voice from heaven, even more so to the crowds who are watching Jesus be baptized. So there's this very public declaration of who Jesus is. There's this very public affirmation, and there's this very public anointing of who Jesus is at his baptism. 
Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, was led by the Holy Spirit. But what came next would have surprised people. I was watching this week a documentary on the making of Game of Thrones. Uh, Spoiler alert, I won't tell you how it finishes. Um, But there is a bit uh, in this documentary that shows the cast reading or hearing read for the first time the last episode of Game of Thrones. And spoiler alert, I won't tell you how it happens, um, but there's a twist at the end. And this moment is where Kit Harrington, who plays Jon Snow, he hears what happens at the end of Game of Thrones for the first time, and that's his face. He wells up with tears. The character who is also involved, they also well up. And it takes people by surprise. They're aghast at what has been written. They can't believe it because they just didn't see it coming. Well, that reaction from Kit Harrington is exactly the reaction that would have been felt by people as they heard those words for the first time from Luke chapter 4. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, was led by the Spirit. What were they expecting next? Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, led by the Spirit into the temple in Jerusalem. Or into the synagogue in Nazareth, where he does go next. Or led to overthrow the Roman Empire. Led to take on Caesar. No. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit, into the wilderness. Into the wilderness. Think again of that reaction of Kit Harrington. The wilderness. You see, for the people of God at the time of Jesus, the wilderness meant various things. The wilderness meant, well, it referred back to the Exodus and where the people of God had had to wander around for 40 years in rebellion against God because of punishment, because they didn't believe God and enter the promised land. The wilderness, that was a place of sin, of rebellion. The wilderness was a place of evil. The wilderness was the place where God wasn't. The wilderness was the place where God isn't. Jesus, full of the Spirit, is led by the Spirit into the wilderness. What? Didn't see that coming. That's a place of evil. That's a place of sin. That's a place of rebellion. That's a place where God isn't. Even today, and we'll look at next week, quite rightly, the Holy Spirit is associated with things like blessing, with comfort, with peace, with joy, with power, with life, with hope, with goodness. All the good things that we think about God, we associate with the Holy Spirit. And yet here, Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit, full of the Holy Spirit, into the wilderness. Not a mountaintop, not the temple in Jerusalem, the place where people thought God lived, 
not even a synagogue, the local branch office, but into the wilderness. Now, the temptations of Jesus are interesting. It's usually preached about at the start of Lent. As the devil comes three times to test Jesus, there's temptations around physical need where Jesus is tempted and tested to turn stones into bread. There are questions about authority or forcing God's hand. And there are these three temptations to do with materialism, to do with power, and to do with false spirituality. Shortcuts to to what God would eventually want. But I don't want to focus on those three temptations this morning. I simply want to focus on the idea of wilderness. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. It's a repeated experience, actually, and has been, of millions of Christians over the last 2,000 years. That actually the wilderness is a place where God does some of his deepest work. It was captured um, by this Carmelite monk in the 6th century, um, St. John of the Cross, who called it the dark night of the soul. Richard Foster, a modern writer on Christian spirituality, calls it the prayer of the forsaken. It's a time when there is a sense of God's absence. It's known and referred to by some people as Deus absconditus, where God hides. He's still there, and the Holy Spirit lives inside you. But again and again, and if you talk to people who have been Christians for a while, they will quite often refer to times that have been difficult, times that have been tough, times when it, it is as though God has withdrawn his presence. I've mentioned before, I'd, I've been a Christian for about six or seven years um, when I became a Christian at about 17, and for the first six or seven years, God was there. Every prayer, answered, bang, boom. And then I was about 24, 25, I was working for a Christian organization, and I woke up one morning, and it was as though somebody had pulled the plug out. And God just wasn't as close as he had been. And I remember going, I remember talking to a friend, and, and we went for a two-hour walk around this park in Leicester, and went through every single aspect of my life. Um, I confessed every single sin that I could think of, and several that I ha- couldn't have thought of, and he suggested to me that I might have committed. And it, it was quite a long walk, and we went, for, and went around, and we confessed, and I, and I said, no, I haven't done this, and I confessed it. And, and, and at the end, Brian just looked at me and said, I think you're going through what's called the dark night of the soul. And as a Christian of six or seven years standing, I went, what is that? I've never, what, who? The dark night of the soul. Where God withdraws his presence. He's, he's still there. We can still talk to him. He can still hear us. But God withdraws his presence. Now, of course, the reality is that God's still living inside us with his Holy Spirit. 
but his presence is withdrawn from us. And it's a bit like a parent teaching a toddler to walk. There comes that moment when you have to start to withdraw as a parent. And you you see the toddler toddling. And the first few times they'll fall over and as a parent you try hard not to laugh because it is quite funny, even though it's painful for the child. But you withdraw because you want the child to grow up. You want the child to start to become more confident and still dependent on you to a degree, but they have to become independent to a degree. And it's the same with our Heavenly Father. He's still living inside us. He still is there for us. But we do go through these seasons where, for a time, he withdraws his presence. And remember, on this particular occasion, it lasted about three months. Three months where I had to carry on speaking and praying and working for this Christian organization, but where God had removed his presence. And then one morning, I woke up, somebody had put God, had put the plug back in. It's weird, but it's happened two or three times since. As I say, different people call it different things. The cloud of unknowing the dark night of faith, or the withering winds of God's hiddenness. Now, it's not a passive time. It's not a time where you do nothing. And neither is it a time where you go, poor me. It's not a victim mentality that you get yourself into thinking. Jesus engaged in 40 days of perhaps the most intense spiritual warfare with Satan. Praying, fasting, rebutting Satan three times, at least, there are probably others that we don't know about, but three times with the three biggies by replying with Scripture again and again to the devil. So it's not a passive time, it's not a time when nothing is happening. And it's not a time when you do nothing. You carry on praying. You carry on reading. You carry on living as a Christian. Because what God is doing is he's testing your trust. He's testing your faith. He's strengthening your faith. He's strengthening your trust. He's asking you perhaps some of the deeper questions about what's really important in your life. And this almost sounds heretical to say it. But the faith of Jesus is stretched during these 40 days. The faith of Jesus is strengthened because Luke very deliberately chooses his words. In Luke 4, chapter 1, he says Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, is led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. But in Luke chapter 4 and verse 14, when Jesus comes back out of the desert and comes back in to Nazareth, he describes Jesus as returning in the power of the Spirit. Something has happened to Jesus. Now again, we need to be careful because Jesus was always fully God and fully human. But something in the nature of who Jesus is has quantifiably changed. 
He isn't less God or more God, but something has happened in the wilderness because he now is described as returning in the power of the Spirit. And as I say, it's often in the wilderness that Jesus will do in us the deepest work. St. John of the Cross put it this way, God's love is not content to leave us in our weakness. And for this reason, he takes us into a dark night. He weans us, there again you get the parenting analogy, he weans us from all the pleasures by giving us dry times and inward darkness. No soul will ever grow deep in the spiritual life unless God works passively in that soul by means of the dark night. I wonder if that's how the disciples felt between Ascension and Pentecost. That's where we find ourselves today. Thursday, Paul took a group of 30, 40 hardy souls up Carlton Hill in the rain, and they celebrated Ascension Day. Christians all around the world on Thursday remembered Ascension Day, that time when Jesus ascended into heaven. And now we find ourselves in the gap between Ascension Day and Pentecost. And I wonder how it was for the early church, who at that stage didn't know that they were the early church. They've seen Jesus go back into heaven. He's told them, go back into Jerusalem and wait and you'll be clothed with power from on high. But for 10 days they had to wait and wait and wait. They hadn't read Acts chapter 2 because it hadn't been written, because it hadn't happened. They didn't know what was about to happen on that particular day of Pentecost. When the Spirit would come like a rushing wind into the upper room, they, tongues of fire would be on their heads and they would suddenly start to praise God in different languages. We'll look at that next week. But that in-between phase of waiting, maybe it felt a bit like a dark night of the soul. Were they willing to trust were they willing to wait? Were they willing still to believe? Maybe even worse, actually, than between the cross and, and resurrection. Because they'd seen the risen Jesus. They'd, they'd been with the risen Jesus. He'd appeared to them again and again and again. And all of a sudden now he was gone. Someone said it's a bit like following the Scottish football team. It's not the the despair that'll kill you, it's the hope. Maybe that's how the disciples felt. They would been with Jesus and now he'd gone and he's promised that what was going to happen was better but they didn't know what was about to happen. Maybe that's how they felt. A dark night of the soul. A wilderness experience. The writer Dallas Willard, who died a couple of years ago, was chatting to somebody one day who talked that they were in the middle of this or about to go into this dark night of the soul. It was a particular health problem. And Dallas Willard, Dallas Willard just looked at them and said this particularly memorable phrase, ah, he said, that will be a test of your joyful confidence in God. It is easy to trust God in the good times. It's easy to trust God when you're gathered with two or three hundred people on a Sunday morning with singing and I think that's fantastic. It's easy on the mountaintop. 
But God says, will you trust me in the valley? God says, will you trust me when I seem miles away? God says, will you trust me when things are going wrong or seemingly going wrong in your life? And as I was preparing this morning, I just, this week, I just sensed that maybe this is a word for somebody or a few people this morning. That you are going through or about, you sense you're about to enter into what feels like a dark night of the soul. It might have been because of a health diagnosis, it might be because of unemployment, it might be because of a relationship, it might be because of bereavement, but something is going on. It might be nothing to do with that, that is actually something you can point your finger at. But maybe it's a bit like when it happened to me the first time, that God is withdrawing his presence and saying, do you trust me? Do you trust me? Are you willing to trust me? even though it's getting harder to trust me. And I think as I've walked alongside people who've gone through this experience, you either get better or you get bitter. And the choice actually is ours. As I say, it's not about the victim mentality. It's not a passive time. But it's where you still turn up and you're still willing to say, God, I'm going to trust you. God, I am going to put you first in my life. I'm willing to believe that you are in charge. Even though I don't know you in charge and even though I don't feel you in charge. What's your wilderness experience? Is that where you are this morning? Let's be quiet and pray together.